0: You know what I love about that song is many times we get caught in the commuter of life, we're just sort of going through the motions. And there's a world around us, uh, a world of things to be thankful for, our family uh, and our what's been entrusted to us. But there's also needs around us. So sometimes in the midst of the commuter mode, we miss those needs around us that we get to be a part of serving and helping. So that's missed with me today. And I wanted to maybe share a little bit about how God sparked in you an interest to start giving back and helping a hurting world. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, a few years ago, um, I kind of went through that exercise like uh, Beth from Back to Back Ministries went through. And she talked about last week where you ask yourself, who am I and what breaks my heart? Mm. And I thought, well, who am I? Um, I'm a Christ follower and Christ is a God of compassion and I want to follow him into that. Mm. Um, you know m- more now that I am an empty nester than I was, you know, when I was compassionate toward my own kids and stuff. Yeah. So then I ask myself, what breaks my heart? And what really breaks my heart is people in my own city, uh, the state of my own country. Um, and that way, I'm a- a different from the back-to-back ministries because um, I don't really want to. I don't really want to travel. To go and help the poor. I just feel like there are people in my own community 20 minutes away that are just in poverty. And mm-hmm. I want to be able to help. And I also want to have an ongoing relationship, just not like fly in once and go. I mean, those ministries are great. But I just don't feel called to that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of out of my comfort zone a little bit.
0: Yeah. And you want something more relational.
1: I do. I, yeah. I want a long-term relationship. I yeah. think... um God wants me to really learn how to love people that are different than me. Right. So, anyway, and another thing I'm, that's different is I'm kind of drawn toward ministries that pull people out of poverty uh, rather than, like, Just I don't know, like, yeah, relief or a hospice care or something like that. I'm more called to, like, making a difference.
2: Yeah, make a difference. I want to change.
1: I, yeah, I want to change the city. Yeah. And I think helping people out of poverty will help do that. So I started praying about that, and somebody told me about CityLink Center downtown. Um, I know where it is. It's off of Liberty Street. It's 20 minutes away from here. I used to drive there all the time, taking my daughter to ballet, so I know the route. Um, I So in 2013, I started working there, and I'm kind of a big-picture big person, so I started at the hospitality desk. You just greet people. And to say hi and meet everybody. And I got a bird's-eye view of all the ministries that go on at CityLink. And then I thought, well, the second year I'll dig down into something more specific maybe. But, man, they do a lot there. They do – it didn't really matter. You don't have to have any skills or you can have be highly skilled and there's something to do. It's completely volunteer run. So you can just be, like, friendly and work at the hospitality Mm -hmm. desk You can be in the financial management, and they have classes on that. You can help with child care. There's a nutrition class. There's an exercise class. There's a gardening. I mean, and they're constantly, I mean, there's something to do. So with my background, I was a homeschooler, and I know about phonics programs, and I have a nonprofit, Providence Extension Ministries, that delivers education to teenagers in, Mm -hmm. in, in secondary education. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the reading readiness class and help with the functionally illiterate. Long story short, my um, nonprofit is now the partner that delivers education, uh, reading education to the functionally illiterate.
0: So you, you and went down there to sort of help out a little bit. It turned out you had <laughs> experience as an educator, and now it's not just helping one person, but it's helping the whole group. And, and is there anybody specifically that comes to mind, like maybe the first person you met with or a person that really struck you as someone you got to help?
1: Well, the first person I met with was a 21-year-old man named Jerry, and um, there he is, uh, and that's with one of our volunteers. She's actually a, a speech therapist that volunteers there. Um, Jerry came to me. He couldn't read at all, not at all, like maybe 25 sight words or something, um, and I started working with him with the intensive phonics program. We we train people on how to deliver the phonics program. And he came to me one day and said, Miss Beth, I've been seeing that er the er of her everywhere. the <laughs> like
0: ER, you mean? Yeah, oh. ER, er the er of her. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: Anyway, and so um,
0: for those of us who weren't trained in phonetics, yeah, want to make sure we're following. When you, you
1: see the ER, it says er. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, <laughs> also,
0: I need to take the class. Apparently,
1: <laughs> it'll improve your spelling too. Well, <laughs> I need that. That's very
0: true. That's a little note.
2: <laughs>
1: so anyway, and then one day he came in, and this is, I mean, talking about what breaks your heart. He had taken a picture on his phone of those riverboats downtown, and he came in and said, and he was like almost shaking, and he said, "Look at here, and on the, it's written on the side of the boat, River City." <laughs> No, it said Queen. He said Queen City River Boats. Mm. Mm. And he said, I'd be seeing that boat all my life, and I never knew what it said.
2: Mm. Mm. And
1: it kind of feels like you know how Jesus opened the eyes of the blind so they Mm -hmm. could see? I mean, He's not blind, but He's seeing stuff He never saw saw before and there's recently I'm working with this woman named Candace who's my age, a young grandmother. And... Um, she.
0: I'm tempted she, to get back at you for what you said about me, but I want you to know there's, a, there's self-control going on here. So keep that's going. That's good.
1: You're an example to us all. So uh,
2: <laughs>
0: Keep
1: going. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that was self-protection on my part. Right, just but anyway, Candace... Uh, dresses professionally, Um, and I was saying, you look so nice. And she said, I really like to shop. And she couldn't read hardly at all either. And uh, she goes, I like to look good. I like to look professional because I hide behind my clothes. You can't tell I can't read just by looking at me, can you? And she's so filled with shame. Mm. And now that she's gotten some skills and she's uh, learned, it's, it's hard. I think she has a learning disability. She's working really hard. But through the relationships with me and lots of other volunteers there, mm. she holds her head up high. Mm. I mean, she, there's an inner healing that's happening mm. alongside breeding. Mm. So it's, it's pretty exciting.
0: And last thing, how, how has ministering in the name of Jesus opened up uh, conversations for folks who maybe don't believe the same way you do?
1: Well, this is, you know, because of my presuppositions and prejudices, Um, this is sort of interesting. Um, We're helping a a man read. He's a 36-year-old Muslim man from Africa. And he's got this big smile. Bahuti comes in. And um, he told one of our volunteers, he said, "Um, I have noticed something about Christians in this country. He was totally uneducated in his own country. Um, He said, I've noticed something. Um, Christians are always helping people.
2: Mm.
1: They're always, like, doing things for people. Mm. And back in my country, Muslims, they just fight with each other. Mm. They're arguing, and they kill. Mm. And then he told another person, "Um, why why are you so happy? Why is there so much joy in Mm. this place? And, And they said, well... Um, we just have the joy of Jesus in our heart, and honestly, CityLink is a fun place to be because there is so much joy there. Yeah. It's just fun to be. And he said, "I want to know this Jesus."
2: No.
1: And uh, one of uh, a Horizon member actually was working with him this week, <clears throat> and uh, was doing a reading comprehension thing. It was about astronauts and stuff. He didn't know that there are other planets. he didn't know there were other planets and so she was talking about the heavens and and he somehow he connected heaven to the heavens and he said, I want to learn how to go to heaven
2: Hmm.
1: and she was like, I didn't know we were allowed to say anything, so I didn't (laughs) (laughs) and I said, you're allowed but anyway, so the Hute I think will be saved and will be enlightened uh, spiritually, but Actually, something happened to me spiritually that I didn't realize. Um, When I used to drive down to Cincinnati Ballet to take my daughter down there, um, I used to kind of feel awkward, um, like I want to lock my doors as I'm going down Liberty Street. Um, I felt a little superior. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I did. And um, so I was driving down there the other day, and I was driving down there, and uh, this man walked in front of me. And I had a knee-jerk reaction. I was like, "Hi!" And I was like, wait, "Wait a minute, I can't do that." But all of a sudden, I saw him as a member of my own community. I was like, "Oh my gosh, something has changed inside of wow, me." That means... I mean, like they're my friends. Mm. I used to be afraid of them.
2: Wow.
1: So it was. I, I can't wait to see the next thing God changes in me. That's
0: good. <laughs> well, can we thank Beth for sharing her story, today?: Thank you, Beth. You know, something happens in all of us when we get close to scarcity. Um, they say necessity is the mother of invention, but I find that scarcity is the mother of invention. Because when you get close to people in poverty, in whatever way, you begin to get very inventive. How can I use the talents and skills that I have to really make a difference, to really change, to really leverage what I have to, hurt, to help a hurting and needy world? I remember when uh, I was a kid, um, really wanted a car, really wanted a cool car. Actually, I think I wanted a Ghostbuster hearse. I think that's what I really wanted. Uh, but I grew out of that, and in college I got a post office Jeep. It, this thing had been totaled, and so my dad took out his welder and he cut it off. I tried to find a, pi- a picture, but I couldn't find one. So he cut out this post office Jeep, made it into a convertible, put in a, a roll bar's and it was a straight-six engine, and it always had trouble. I mean, I was always fixing this thing. And so I had to get very, very resourceful, very, very inventive on how to solve it. In fact, my solenoid went out. If, if you haven't ever done this, if your solenoid goes out, you can take a, um, a, a pliers, and you can uh, hit both sides of the solenoid, and it'll start your car, even if you can't afford a new solenoid. So that's what I was doing for a while, because I was a college student didn't have enough money. So I got very, very resourceful in figuring out how I'm going to and I thought, well, I'm tired of getting out of the car, popping the hood, uh, hitting the solenoid. So I put a wire directly from one side of the solenoid to another. I drilled a hole in my dashboard and I put a switch. So when I got to my car, just like, boom, burr, start right up. Save me all kinds of time. And I love this thing. I love this uh, Jeep. And, and a lot of what I learned about creativity and resourcefulness in my life came from places of scarcity where I didn't have enough resources. And I thought, what am I going to do in light of the fact that I don't have what I need to do this? And You get very inventive. As you look around our church, you're going to find folks who come face-to-face with scarcity, and they do the same thing. For those who heard about our Belize trip, most of you know Bob. Bob's one of our greeters who's out and uh, greets you and your kids as he comes in. And he says, hey, I want to be part of Belize. I, I, I'm not necessarily going to go, but I want to involve my." My passion's about organizing a golf trip, I want to put a golf trip together, so that in getting that together, we can raise some money to, to help out with what's going on there, because I got face-to-face with scarcity. Some folks went down to Belize a couple years ago, or went back- to back, and they saw they need a soccer field and said, "I want to write a check for a soccer field." Other folks went down to Belize a couple of years ago. They got face-to-face with scarcity. They found out that 60 to 80 percent of girls, age 14 and older, end up in prostitution. They saw that scarcity. They said, well, what what, what do we need to do? It's only $150 per year for a child to go to high school and avoid prostitution. They wrote a check for multiple kids to go for four years for school. When you get face-to-face with needs, you get very inventive on how we're going to solve it. How can I be part of it? How can I leverage it? How can I be part of of serving and compassion and making a difference? So today I want to talk about how to take four looks at scarcity. And when you see those four looks, how it can unlay leisure, a spark in you, an innovation to motorize you and your skills and your talents to say, I want to be part of changing the world with what God's entrusted to me. Now, to do that, I want to tell you a story. I'll tell you a story from the Bible. It's in Second Kings, chapter 7. And to act it out, all the pieces, I've got all the pieces parts here to tell you what happens. So in Second Kings, chapter 7, what happens is that Elisha comes to the king of Israel. And he says, I know we're in trouble. We're in trouble because our city right now has been surrounded by the, by the Arameans. And they have got us starved out waiting for us to die. And there's no way out without getting killed. What are we going to do? Food is costing us a whole month's wages, sometimes a year's wages, because supply is going down, prices are going up. So Elisha turns to the king and says, God has told me to tell you that by tomorrow you'll get a loaf of bread for pennies on the dollar. So, costing a month's wage, it only cost pennies on the dollar. King says, "Not a chance." He says, "Trust God." He says, "He's going to provide." So, the army's over here. The Hebrew people are stuck in the city gates. No way out. Starving to death. And there were four people living in the community that used to be well known, used to be well liked. In the story, they're called lepers. For the sake of our story, we're going to call them outcasts—folks that used to be popular but they've been thrown out. For our case, our first one will be Justin Bieber. And he has been cast out of the community. He's sitting outside of the gate starving, thrown out by the people who were supposed to care for him. He's a leper. You can hear him quietly sort of whimpering to himself,
2: baby, 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 baby.
0: (laughs) So That's him. Well, our next outcast who used to be popular, used to be somebody you'd look up to, and now you're sort of like, what do you do with her is Miley Cyrus. So Miley Cyrus uh, is one of our outcasts. And she, too, uh, if you asked her, why are you outside the city gate? She'd say, my life, my health become a wrecking ball. It's just all falling apart. It's just all bad. Uh, Our next outcast is uh, Lindsay Lohan. And uh, she would say she's been cast out because of all the mean girls that are living here in the city. But bottom line is she's one of our outcasts. And our final one is, is MC Hammer. So MC Hammer is here. And MC Hammer, you know, he used to celebrate with all the people. But now he, too, is an outcast sitting outside of the gates. And because he's a leper, he invented a song called, da-na-na-na, na, na, can't touch this. So here they are. So here are our outcasts and our lepers sitting outside the city, and they got a decision to make. They say, We're gonna, if we stay here, we starve. If we go in, we die and starve. If we go over to the enemies, we die too. What should we do? Bieber turns to, uh, to M.C. Hammer and says, I don't know, what do you think? And he says, well, you've got to pray just to make it today. Let's get some wisdom. They get some wisdom. They decide... Given all their options, they're going to go over and at least offer to get mercy from the enemy and hopefully surrender themselves and maybe they can eat. So they head over. Do, 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 do. When they get over to the city gates or to the enemy uh, camp, all of the armies are gone. Like the tents are there, the supplies are there, but all of the soldiers are gone. And they're shocked by this. They went over there hoping for mercy, and what they found was far more than mercy. The enemy is gone, and there is a path where they have taken off for miles. And as they've taken off, their supplies dumped along the way, like they ran off very, very quickly. So they start going through the tents. They find all kinds of supplies. They find food. And they have not eaten in a long time. And they find the best food, and lots of food, plenty of food for themselves. They're filling themselves up. They find money. They find money and resources that they never had before and they put their money in place. They keep looking through. They find resources that they can utilize. And and suddenly they realize, well, what if these guys come back? We got to hide this stuff. So they take the supplies that they found and they go and hide it in the cave or hide it underground so that they have enough for today and for tomorrow. Well, then they come back and the army's not back, so they keep looking. And they find more supplies and they go and they hide that. And then they go back and they are sitting outside the gate with full bellies, having more than they need, not just for today, but for tomorrow as well. And they start celebrating. In fact, one of them starts singing Party in the USA. I mean, this is just unbelievable how good God has been, how he's provided for them. And MC Hammer suddenly says, Stop! It's Hammer time! It, stop! Well, this, this is no good! What we're doing is not good! This is a day of good news, he says. We need to go and tell those on the other side of the wall who are starving that we have enough and plenty so that all of us can be provided for. So, wow, well, we can't do that. The people aren't going to listen to us. They never listen to us. Well, we've got to do it anyway, because if they find out we have food and didn't share it with them, we're going to be punished. So they go up to the, uh, to the king and they say, hey, king, we got food out here. The king says, it's a trap. No, it's not a trap. Well, Lindsay Lona it's not a parent trap. It's a trap. I'm not going to come out. Well, come on. So they send out some guys. And they check out, sure enough, they find the supplies are there. And they find that what happened is that God had created a sound to occur that sounded like an upcoming army. And so the Aramaeans had gotten so scared, thinking they had hired two mercenary armies to attack them on their behalf, they ran off, leaving all their supplies behind. They bring the supplies into the town. They begin to share with those that are in need all that they had. And sure enough, one day after Elisha had made the prophecy... They were able to buy bread for pennies on the dollar. So this is this account in Second Kings of the celebration that occurred when those who had nothing got what God provided for them and shared with others. When they got face-to-face with scarcity, it became the mother of invention on how to be generous. And I think there's four applications we can take from this crazy story. Four looks to scarcity. The first one is that each one of us needs to look up. Look up. Who is it that provided the victory? There's a great verse in Deuteronomy that says, You remember, you shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to create wealth. I love that idea that many times I've attended to think it's my innovation or my responsibility or my education that got me where I am today. And yet, when we look up and say, well, all that I have, yes, I was responsible. Yes, I worked hard. But all that I have is from God that he's given me the ability to produce wealth. I begin to have a sense of stewardship to say, God, if you've given it to me, what would you want me to do with it? In fact, when our outcasts head over, now they had to take the initiative to go over there. No one else did. But who is it that actually provided the victory? Who is it that made the sound that scared them off? Well, here's what it says in Kings. The Lord had caused the army of Aramaeans to hear a sound of chariots and sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So God had done the work. And when we look up and say, God, you've done the work in my life, you've provided for me, it begins to generate something in us to move towards scarcity and to share. In fact, Gallup Poll did a research and found that if you make $37,000 a year or more, you are in the top 4% of the world's population. They also did a research and they asked folks who made $50,000, how much do you need to, to be rich? And the answer was 100000 they asked people who made $100,000 a year, what do you need to be rich? It was $200,000. In fact, the only uniform answer they got from Gallup poll on what it meant to have enough resources was if you had $5 million in liquid assets, you were considered yourself rich. So it's always a moving target. So one of the ways we begin to be generous and develop a compassionate heart is we begin to look up and remind ourselves that whatever we have, we're in the top 4% of the world's population. And though we could always have more, what would God want us to do with what we have? In fact, Bill Gates was in India several years ago. And he was visiting a village of folks in utter poverty. While he was there, he came face to face this woman. He was asking about her needs personally, the needs of the community, what he could do to help. And as Bill Gates left, a reporter runs up to this woman in, in the hut. He says, do you realize you just met the richest man in the world? He's sort of unfazed. She's like, all you Americans are rich. You see the difference between making 34,000 or several million a year or billion a year when you're in the poverty in India it's like jumping to the moon the gap between here and there is equally unfathomable and yet there's something in our culture that propitiates the idea that I don't ever have enough instead of looking up and saying wow look at what I have found look what I do have in my life what would god have me use it for The second thing we need to do is look around. We look up and recognize how blessed we are to live in this particular time and place in life. Then we look around. We say, what do I have around me? There's this tendency in us to not see all the things we do have. Here's what happens in the passage. When the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank. They carried from their silver and gold and clothes and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent, carried it away and hid them. We have so much stuff in our life that we have access to, that when we unhide them, when we reflect on them, we look around and say, I've got money. Yeah, I'm an empty nester. I've got time I didn't have before. Wow, I've actually got food for myself and for three meals. Most people in the world don't. When we look around at what we have and we begin to be thankful for what we have, we say, God, what do you want me to do with what I have? But we got to look around. Not at what we don't have, but what we do have. In fact, they did a study, this is from a TED Talk, A playing Monopoly. And they did a study on the sociological factors that impact you when you get wealth. And that there's nothing, even if there's nothing wrong with your heart, the sociological factors of being sort of flipped into the idea of having wealth and having influence can unintentionally create a tension in you or create habits in you that maybe you're not so proud of. Let's watch the research and we'll, we'll dive into it.
3: I want you to, for a moment, think about playing a game of Monopoly, except in this game, that combination of skill, talent, and luck that help earn you success in games as in life has been rendered irrelevant because this game's been rigged, and you've got the upper hand. You've got more money, more opportunities to move around the board, and more access to resources. How might that experience of being a privileged player in a rigged game change the way that you think about yourself and regard that other player. We ran a study on the UC Berkeley campus. We brought in more than 100 pairs of strangers into the lab and with the flip of a coin randomly assigned one of the two to be a rich player in a rigged game. They got two times as much money when they passed go, they collected twice the salary and they got to roll both dice instead of one. So they got to move around the board a lot more. And over the course of 15 minutes, we watched through hidden cameras what happened. How many 500s did you have? Just one. Are you serious? Yeah. I have three. (laughs) One person clearly has a lot more money than the other person. And yet, as the game unfolded, we saw very notable differences and dramatic differences begin to emerge between the two players. The rich player started to move around the board louder, literally smacking the board with their piece as he went around. We're more likely to see signs of dominance and nonverbal signs of display, uh, displays of power and celebration among the rich players. All right. We had a bowl of pretzels positioned off to the side. It's on the bottom right corner there. That That allowed us to watch participants' consumatory behavior. And those rich players start to eat more pretzels. And as the game went on. One of the really interesting and dramatic patterns that we observed begin to emerge was that the rich players actually started to become ruder for the other person. at At the end of the 15 minutes, we asked the players to talk about their experience during the game. And when the rich players talked about why they'd inevitably won in this rigged game of Monopoly. They talked about what they'd done to buy those different properties and earn their success in the game. And they became far less attuned to all those different features of the situation, including that flip of a coin that had randomly gotten them into that privileged position in the first place. Now, this game of monopoly can be used as a metaphor for understanding society and its hierarchical structure wherein some people have a lot of wealth and a lot of status, and a lot of people don't. What we've been finding across dozens of studies and thousands of participants across this country is that as a person's levels of wealth increase, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. And their feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and their ideology of self-interest increases. So what that means is that there are social
0: forces in play that if you just do what's normal, you're going to end up being prey to these forces that don't get, don't remind you to look around and say, well, we have been born into the freest society in the world. Just by the flip of a coin, we could have been born somewhere else. We don't even have a chance to even ever accumulate wealth in any way. So I think we need to be intentional to look up, to look around at what we do have instead of what we don't have. And then to the point of what they studied here in the Monopoly, we have to purposely uninsulate ourselves by looking over, looking over. It's ironic that the wall in the city is what cast out these outcasts. In other words, this wall kept those who had some, not a lot, but they had some in the city during the starvation from even thinking about those on the other side of the wall. But the irony is that once the people outside the wall had money and resources, they had the same problem. They had a wall that kept them from thinking about those who had less than they did. Here's what it says in the passage. This is MC Hammer. Stop the hammer time. Stop. We're not doing what's right. It's a day of good news that we are keep and we're keeping silence. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go over the wall. Let's look over to the people in need. Let's tell the king and his household what's happening here. Let's let him know. One of the things you have to be very intentional about is that because we live near people with the same economic background than us, we vacation with people like that, we, we have the same kind of cars that they do, we have a tendency to not be around scarcity. We insulate ourselves just by the social forces that... Have us live where we live. So we've got to go out of our way to step over the wall and look for those downtown who can't read. Look at those nearby who are hurting spiritually. Go to Belize and see folks who don't even know where the next meal's coming from. Imagine a world that we go and discover where girls are forced into prostitution because it's the only economic means for them to sustain their family. When we look over the wall, we say, that's not right. It's not right that we live in a world like that. It's not right that the girls should have no choices. And that scarcity begins to put in motion in you a spark. Pistons begin to move and you say, I, could do, I can't do it all, but I can do something about this. And the innovation and the entrepreneurship in you begins to say, what could I do with what I do have? But the spark of that is looking over the wall. In fact... The good news, the phrase here he uses, this is a day of good news, is the same word used in the Bible to describe the message of Jesus. It's the gospel means good news. The good news is that Jesus, who was rich in heaven, had everything he ever needed, became poor by coming to earth. That through his poverty, through his self-sacrifice, through his giving to other people... He allows us to be rich in Christ, to know that our ultimate treasures are in heaven, so that we can live a life of generosity and compassion and service to others now. See, his good news motivates good deeds. And that's the difference between being a good, moral uh, person who helps people, and that's great, to being a Christ follower. A Christ follower says, I'm not doing this to, to earn street cred with God so I can be good enough for him. No, no. He made me good enough for him through the good news. And because he did that for me, because he was so generous to me, so compassionate to me, because he left, he looked over the wall of heaven and saw me in need and came and found me. Because he did that for me, that is such good news. I want to go over the wall and look for other people like he did for me and do good deeds for them. That's what I want to make part of my life. When I was in Turkey a few weeks ago, looking at some of the cities that were written about in the Bible, our leader told a story about this Muslim village way in the middle of nowhere that no one ever goes to visit. But he and his uh, group of high school students had hiked hours and hours and they got to this vi- remote village that nobody ever visited. And when they got to this village, they discovered a village that had many, many kids, no indoor plumbing, no bathrooms. The small classroom they had had like one desk, but the kids all had to sit on the floor. And there was a Muslim man there who had left a nice paying job to come and help these kids in this remote area of Turkey learn how to read. As they were impacted, these high school students, by the scarcity and the poverty here, they all got together and said, we've got to do something about this. What if we just give to them? So they reached into their wallets and they pulled out all the money these high school students had. And they put it in an envelope because in that, in that uh, society they weren't sure if giving the money would be offensive or not. So they put it in an envelope and they just left it on the guy's desk. So well, these high school students, about forty of them, coming face to face with scarcity, pulling out of their wallets on the trip, had three thousand dollars in that envelope. But they didn't wait for the response, they left. About a year later, the same uh guy came with a group of high school students, a couple of them the same. As they got to the edge of the field, somebody saw them coming, because nobody ever comes to this village. And there is like all kinds of commotion in the city. The, the guy who is the head of it, the Muslim man, runs out. He gets in his car and he drives out. He meets them while they're hiking. He goes, Oh, you're back. I can't wait to tell you what I've done with the resources you gave me. We are so thankful. He, he escorts them back into town. The kids have put it on a makeshift parade, celebrating those who use their resources to change their lives. They wanted to show them, look, look, we now have running water. Look at this bathroom we have here. Look at the desks we have. Look at the textbooks we have. They were so celebratory because you took what you had, and we want you to know we used it wisely. In the same way, Jesus tells a story. You may not believe this or not, but let me tell you how powerful it is. In the same way. He says that God gave to you and I resources, and he left for a while, and he's going to return again one day. And when he returns, he wants us to be so excited to say, let me tell you what I did with the resources. Let me show you about how I built this over here and how I help people read over here. Let me tell you about how I served here and near and far. And we're not scared about Jesus' return. We can't wait for it. Well, give us more time. we got more work to do. But whenever you come, oh, come on. I want to show you what I've done with what you've entrusted to me. I've been looking over the wall and I've been finding places of chaos and poverty and finding ways to impact that. Come and let me tell you about it. And one of the walls that you don't think about, and I certainly didn't think about until five years ago, is the wall of families with special needs. You don't realize the challenges of those with kids with special needs until you're in it. And then, you only know, think about it, you can't get away from it. And yet there's volunteers in our church who look over the wall and they serve here in our children's ministry and do an incredible blessing to me and to my family. Because when you have a son who has autism, and at age five still can't say, more words than probably your two-year-old, and where folks will well-meaning people come up to me over the years and say, "Well, you know, he'll just he'll 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 speak in his time." No, he really won't. The thing about autism is you got to woo him, push him, or pull it out of him because they're not going to get to the place that they want to talk. It's about six months ago that's when I were like we got to find a rhythm that works, and we got to get the the needed time for speech therapy involved. And so, oh, who wants to go to the hospital three times a week? And the research says it has to be at least three times a week for it to even work. Oh. And so we met a the speech therapist who is just ruthless in diagnosing and helping and co- comes to our house to help us so we don't have to take the trips down there. She's trained a, a, another friend, a volunteer here in the church, Shannon, who works with Quinn on Saturdays and, and at 1110, uh, Duke and others who work with him in the children's program. And, and we've trained all of them to help him speak. So he's not just getting it three times a week. Wherever he goes, we went to the, his school in kindergarten, and his teachers are teaching it. and he's just being drilled into this ABA therapy to learn how to speak. And he couldn't say hardly any words, None. I didn't know if I'd ever hear my son's voice. But because of those who looked over the wall and helped us, served us, joined the journey with us, four months later, I get to hear my son's voice. In the morning, I get him up. I say, what's this? What's this? Shirt. No, these are shoes. Shoes. What's this? Socks. And the most proud moment I had as a dad, it was this week on Thursday. He my five-year-old, if you meet another five-year-old, you get very depressed, I mean, very depressed to see the gap between my five-year-old and the five-year-old. But I'm telling you, I celebrate the little victories. So we come down Tuesday morning, I'm getting ready for to get on the bus. And I said, you want to eat this? What's this? He says, Bacon. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Proud moment for me as a dad. I never would have imagined that I would get so excited about hearing a five-year-old say bacon. But the community effort of volunteers to serve in our children's program... Serve with us and entering into this wall of special needs is so powerful. Not just what happens to them. That's what this whole series is about. It's not just what happens to them. It's what happens in you. What happens in you when you begin to serve scarcity is just as important as what happens to them. Powerful things begin to occur. So look up. Look around at what you have. Look over the walls of insulation. And lastly, look out. Look out. As that study showed a monopoly, there's this tendency to not know what you have. I love what it says in the passage. We are not doing right. It's not right to just hoard what we have while other people starve. It's not right. I've got to look out for this tendency. Why would I even think it's okay to sit outside a city of starving people and eat with full bellies? Why would I think that? This isn't right. I've got to look out for this covetous tendency. I've got to look out for this tendency to, to, to push myself away from scarcity. Look out. Jesus says it this way. Take heed. And beware of the many faces of covetousness. Another way of saying it is look out for the many faces of greed. There's, there's low-class greed, and there's high-class greed, and there's middle-class greed. There's greed of overspending. There's greed of overhoarding. There's greed of, uh, of, of thinking that, that it's easy for you just because you're, you're born in America. So we've got to watch out. Take heed. Look out for covetousness. Look out for the tendencies we have to insulate ourselves. Look out. Because what happens is covetousness, always wanting something else instead of being content with what you have and looking at how to use what you have to bless others, covetousness sneaks into the walls of your city. I've never, ever, 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 in 20 plus years of of being a pastor, had anyone come to my office and say, Chad, I really need to talk. What's going on? I'm really struggling with greed. Not once. Not once. I've had marriage problems. I've had depression problems. Not one person has ever said they struggle with greed. Because it sneaks into the door of your heart, covetousness does, and you don't even identify it. So the only wise thing to do is presume we have it. To presume that it snuck in and say, look out, okay, look out. I'm always thinking about more and more and more. What does it look like for me to not raise my standard of, of living, but raise my standard of giving? My dad was telling me a story this summer. Uh, he was a school teacher in the Midwest. He told me a story about how George Clark broke into a fortress of the British in Indiana And so here was the dilemma he had. The British had this thing secure, and they weren't starved out. They had plenty of supplies. They were going to do fine. Thank you very much. And George Clark didn't have hardly any resources. He only had about 170 men, and he had to figure out how to get the British, who were totally secure, to surrender the fort. So what he did is he gathered his 170 men and says, we need to look like we're a couple thousand. So they divided up and made flags, looking like they were different infantry sections. And so they got 20 people over here with one flag coming out of the woods. And they found a way to shoot their guns repeatedly so it would sound like three or 400 coming from this direction. They had another group brought another flag coming out of the woods another direction, and they're firing rapid fire to make it sound like there's more than they have, etc. He had four different groups, still only had about 170 people. But because of the four flags, it looked like four regiments had surrounded the entire place. And George Clark walks up to the British and says, Surrender now or we're going to take you. Now, far outnumbered. But his scarcity inspired innovation. Scarcity is a mother invention. How are we going to use what we do have to get access to what we want? And sure enough, the British came out, oh my goodness, we're surrounded, this is terrible, we're far outnumbered, and they surrendered the entire fortress to George Clark, all because he had people who could pull the trigger quick, and he made four flags. And what happens is that Many times we surrender our hearts to covetousness and we don't even know it. We just live in a culture that constantly bombards us with it's not enough, you're not happy yet. And so it sneaks into the doors of our heart by deceiving us. And so we've got to look out and say, well, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to miss out. Scarcity is the mother of invention. So here's what I want to encourage you. If you want to do this, look up, look around, look over and look out. To me, it means intentionally engaging in some scarcity. Intentionally. We talked at our church that we're about a continuum of helping you, wherever you are, take the next step. And what's the next step for you? And your next step might not be my next step. And when it comes to giving and serving and compassion, it's the same thing. For some of us, the idea of giving is I'm far too busy. Giving is a burden. I don't have time for anything else. And I would just say for you, intentionally engage and take a step. Okay, you know, I don't feel like it, but you're going to move to giving as a discipline. Hey, I want to start serving. I want to be a greeter at the church because somebody greeted me. I want to serve children in the church because somebody served my children. It's going to start with a discipline. I want to start giving financially a little bit because those gave that I could have a resource like this to learn from. And then you move from it's just a discipline to, well, that's a responsibility. In light of what I have, how could I not want to do this? And then you're going to move, and this is hard to believe, especially if you've never gotten here in this journey, where giving is a privilege. Giving of your time is a privilege. Giving of your money is a privilege. That really is possible. Like when my son was 10, I told him, one day you'll like to kiss
2: girls.
0: (laughs) I'm telling you the same way. One day you'll, if you move on this continuum, you will love giving your money and your time away. Because you get close to scarcity and you say, oh my goodness, what would be a better use of my time than this? What would be a better use of my money than this? What would be a better use of my talent than this? So for you, wherever you are on that continuum, for if you're at the giving as a burden, I would encourage you to go from nothing to being a tipper. <laughs> a tipper. That's when you go, well, it there's no real discipline in my life, but I'm just going to tip God. A little bit of money here. A little bit of time here. It's not organized yet, but, but I don't want to be a scrooge. I don't want to be a person who's self-centered. I at least ought to tip. And you're going to feel better about yourself. And you're going to say, well, maybe i to do the next step. And then I want you to move to being a regular giver. You've got a system in your life to engage scarcity. A system where you're, you're serving downtown, you're getting blue bags, you're serving someone down the inner city. You're serving here, near, and far, but you've got a rhythm in your life. Financially, for me, my wife and I, we've got a rhythm of, of giving financially, where we set it up with auto debit. But we want a rhythm of our life of giving regularly and remind ourselves that what we have is from God and other people are needy in the world. You move from a regular giver to being a tithing a percentage of your income. And for you, 1% might be like, I've never give 1%. We'll start with half of 1%. Maybe you've been at 1% for years. You say, you know what, I want to give more away and let what God's given to me. You want to move to 2%, 3%, 4%. As you do that, you go, well, in light of what he's given me, how can I not help a world that's hurting so much? And then you get to a place where you've not only given 10% of your income away, but you say, wow, I've got more of my money set aside just to give stuff away. I want to look for opportunities that God might use me to bless other people. And I know for many of you, you look at that scale and you're like, I can't imagine getting to tithing 10% or beyond. Well, then don't. Wherever you are, just take a step in purposely engaging scarcity, and God will impact your heart. He will fill you up with compassion and joy in ways you never would have imagined. But if you do what comes natural like I do, you're going to end up insulated. So you've got to step outside. In fact, the band's going to come and sing this next song. And I love this song because the song speaks about what happens in this motor when God puts a spark in your heart, when you get face to face with scarcity, with need, with pain, with difficulty, when you see that, when you feel that, it is just like the spark in an engine. And you have this perfect combination uh, of gas and air mixed together, and it's God's blessing in your life. What he's done for you, what he might have done for you, if you don't believe in God yet, you're like, well, the fact that I've been entrusted with so much, the fact that I have more than others. But this mixture of God's part, the gas and my part, my talents, my skills, my opportunities. And when the gas and the air begin to mix and God puts a spark in that, there's an explosion in your heart. You, you have this, this bonfire of a heart. You have this heart explosion within you and the pistons begin to move and begin to innovate. And you say, I want to do and use what's been entrusted to me to motorize this world. So God, spark in all of us a heart of compassion and a heart of joy. Put in us a fire to change the world. Well, God, we just thank you for that spark. We thank you that this is a place that has been sparked with a bonfire. And Father, we ask that you put a spark in each one of us, that we would be your ambassadors, we would be your fire carriers, that we would set a fire here in this church serving one another, we would set a fire nearby in the city impacting those in poverty and difficulty, and God, that we would set a fire far with all the endeavors we're doing in our lives and in our church to impact you. Thank you so much for the grace we have in our journey to take the next step with you and just woo us into giving the way you give. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. Uh, MC Hammer albums will be available on the way out. Uh, We'll see you all next week. Thanks for coming.